Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It is May 1st, 2018. If you haven't checked them out, we've posted the audio from Monday's Midwest Conservative Summit in Milwaukee, a panel discussion with staffers from the Weekly Standard and Stephen Hayes' one-on-one interview with Speaker Paul Ryan. Now, today, again, we have a special edition of uh, the podcast. It is the Tuesday uh, to the Tuesday morning quarterbacks. And joining me is Greg Easterbrook, whose column is up at the Weekly Standard site right now. Happy May, Greg. Thank you, Charlie. Uh, you were just telling me uh, your interesting May May 1st, May Day story. You actually were in Paris once on May 1st? Yes, I was staying in a hotel, and I came to the hotel room door first thing in the morning, and outside the door of my room and every room on the floor was a slice of cake so that the guests could celebrate May Day. And I've been waiting for for somebody to bring me a slice of cake on May 1st again for 20 years. We have never stepped up as a country to celebrating May 1st. Uh, you know, the, the Soviets always paraded their big gigantic missiles. The French apparently hand out cake and I don't know what we, we do. So let's talk about uh, this edition of the of the Tuesday morning quarterbacks, uh, your NFL draft retrospective. And uh, this was uh, this was a quarterback palooza, wasn't it? Well, it sure was. Uh, you've, any football fan has heard that it was the first time that four of the top 10 players chosen were quarterbacks. And at some point, 10 of the top 10 chosen will be quarterbacks. My my column contends that in the contemporary NFL, especially the last 20 years, the way the league has changed its rules to favor the passing game, that if you want a successful team in the NFL, there's having a franchise quarterback, and then there's everything else combined. So the significance of the franchise quarterback has become so tremendous that uh, at some point everybody's going to use their first-round draft pick on a quarterback just in the hopes that they'll get a really good one. Well, you you liked uh, the Cleveland Browns selection of Baker Mayfield, and you describe him as um, an underdog athlete. Talk about that choice. He he is a wonderful story. I I think many many of your listeners, Charlie, may may know this. Nobody offered him a scholarship coming out of high school, although he, he played very well and had fabulous stats at the high school level. And he played for Lake Travis, which is a high school in the Austin, Texas area. That's that's a high-profile uh, prep football program. Nobody wanted him. He went to Texas Tech as a walk-on. At Texas Tech, they told him, get lost. We don't want you here either. So he went to Oklahoma as a walk-on, and all he did was win the Heisman and set all kinds of records. And now he's been the number one Picking the draft. This this is a pattern. This is the third time in the last six years that the number one drafted guy in the NFL was not a highly rated recruit coming out of high school. So it's that kind of wonderful underdog story that we all like. Yeah, did not get five stars from Rivals.com, which you describe as the holy writ of football recruiting. Uh, if three of the last six didn't get the five stars, maybe it's not the holy writ anymore. Well, it is the holy – if you're listening, just click on – type in Rivals.com. You'll see this incredible artificial universe of thousands of high school boys and some high school girls now because they're doing more than football. They're doing a, a lot of prep sports who are trying to get noticed and recruited. And it's become so central to the long off season of college football and other college sports that we're in right now that – a lot of boosters and alumni clubs go through rivals name by name and rank their recruiting classes. Some college football coaches get bonuses based on how many stars are in 
the recruits that they sign. And of course, if you were a 17-year-old kid, boy or girl, you'd rather have stars on rival than not have them. But you know, we've learned by the last six NFL drafts that how you're ranked when you're 17 years old doesn't really have a heck of a lot to do with how you perform once you're mature. I want to talk about uh, your uh, disturbing discussion of Aaron Rodgers. Of course, um, everybody at the Weekly Standard are Packer fans or, or, or ought to be. But um, one line jumped out at me from from the column, Pete Carroll goes Comey. Whoa. So going Comey is now a thing. And Pete Carroll has gone Comey. What do you mean? I, I think I have coined the phrase going Comey, which I mean to engage in an elaborate pretense of self-praise because Comey is inscrutable. What were his motives? The only motive that really makes sense for everything that Comey did was promoting himself because the result of it is that he's a celebrity and he's wealthy. So going Comey in the, in the NFL draft sense, and you, you mentioned Pete Carroll means that this, the Seahawks, who have all kinds of needs, traded down in the first round. Carroll chose a guy who was not all that well-known or expected to go high and then announced to the world that that's the guy that he would have picked anyway, even if he hadn't traded. So this is a form of going Comey because you're basically saying, I'm smarter than everybody else. I knew that was the guy that I really wanted. Okay, now, wh- 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 why is that going Comey, not going Trump? Uh, it could be going Trump as well. It's just that I, I didn't coin the phrase going Trump. So I'm quoting myself, which, uh, as Oscar Wilde said, adds spice to the conversation. All right. As a as a as a cheesehead, I found uh, your speculation about Aaron Rodgers disturbing. Uh, you're detecting some signs in, in the draft that the Packers may be thinking that the Aaron Rodgers era may be coming to an end. Well, he's a terrific player when he's on, but you got to you got to look at the the look at the scoreboard as players say, uh, Charlie, and since winning the Super Bowl, Aaron Rodgers is five and six as a starter in the playoffs. And several of those losses have been at home. So given that and his age and his injury history, I think the Packers are setting the table for replacing him. They tr- they also traded down in this year's draft to acquire an extra number one pick next year that positions them to move up in the 2019 draft and pick a, a young quarterback. It, you also, and, and for people who have not uh, looked at, at at your column, you are would we say kind of a, a renaissance man when it comes to this column? You, you obviously this is this is a a deep dive into the NFL draft, but you also wander far afield. And I found your comments about the, the new space books really interesting. I have not uh, you know read any of them, but you uh, you highlight two important and revealing new books about space travel. What what should we be reading? Uh, Charlie, first I'll tell you that I, I used to promote myself as a dark ages man, and it just didn't go that well. So <laughs> Renaissance sounds better. I I, I, I cite and, and praise in this column two actually pretty similar books, one called Space Baron by Christian Davenport, the other called Rocket Billionaires by Tim Fernholtz. And a, any of your listeners who are interested in the, in the contemporary space business, I would commend either or or both of these books to them. They do a great job of uh, re- recounting the entrepreneurial efforts of Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and a few other people, but mainly Bezos and Musk, and, and also recounting how sort of NASA, reporting on how NASA kind of lost its way after the tremendous success of, a, of the 1969 moon landing. NASA didn't understand or didn't more to the point, didn't want to understand that the next phase would be getting to space cheaply so that it could be done 
on a routine basis. And they, both of these books, again, two good books, show how the entrepreneurs were drawn into the subject to try to figure out how to do it cheaply, isn't the right word, relatively less expensively than NASA and the Air Force do it. And now both of those men are having success, which I think is good for the future of spaceflight. And, and that was not necessarily predictable 20 years ago. You know, if you would have said that we would have, you know, reliable, lower cost launchers, um, you know, that were commercially viable, people would have said, that's an interesting idea. How is that actually going to happen? Well, it is the reality now. Um, is is it is this driven by just the inevitable economics or is is this one of those 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 stories where extraordinary visionaries change change the landscape? I think it's I, I think there is some visionary element involved. I tend to think of this story more in terms of economics. And your your listeners know that the late Robert Bork made his reputation, rightly or wrongly, some people complain about this, but he made his reputation in antitrust law by con- contending that monopolies naturally self-destruct because the kind of enterprises that are fundamentally overpriced invite nimble competitors. And that if, if you view NASA and the U.S. Air Force, which has almost as much launch expenses as NASA does. If you view them as monopolies and you view Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk as nimble competitors that are trying to kick the chair out from under a monopoly, what they're doing, what those two men and the companies they run are doing makes sense in economic terms as well as engineering terms. Okay, back to uh, the the NFL. Uh, your Tuesday morning quarterback motto is all predictions wrong or your money back. Is that correct? And so every year, you uh, mock predictions, but what I really like were the, the, the you single out the what you call the pseudo predictions and uh, the 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 faux precision of some of the the new experts. Can you talk about that for a little bit? Well, we just went through the draft and we listened to all these forty yard dash times. Yes, a player's forty yard dash does help predict how he'll perform in the NFL, but we listened to 40-yard dash times to the hundredths place. You know, one guy was a 4.48, one of the other guy was a 4.49. So obviously you want that 4.48 guy because he will get there one inch faster than the other player. I think we, society right now wants to believe that everything can be broken down to phenomenally specific analytical numbers that go to the many decimal points. One reason that everybody, including certainly me, was wrong about the 2016 presidential election, is that we wanted to believe that we could model voters' behaviors, not in general terms, but to the decimal places. And we, we see this a lot in sports, but we also see it in other things. I cite, of a lot, I cite a lot of different examples that are not in sports in this week's TMQ. Uh, porn stars. Um and we talk about uh, porn stars and movies. You've talked about porn stars and and movies. Um, you, you can't turn on television today without uh, hearing stories about uh, porn porn star Stormy Daniels. And and you you, you raise a question that I'll I will admit has never actually occurred to me. Um, what what about all of the other uh, stars in in pornography? Whenever you see a performer, whenever you see a media reference to a, an an adult video performer. She's always described as a porn star, which mm-hmm. sounds like a it sounds great. It sounds like getting a participation trophy. Everybody in the movie is the star. But but my point is, wouldn't there have to be a supporting cast in porn? Aren't there character actors? Aren't there key gips, key grips and gaffers and and other movie industry types? That, um, but everybody's a star. It's great. Yeah. And there, there, there are no awards for lighting or fluffers. 
I actually, <laughs> I actually use the term fluffer on, on cable television. And then people were really, really shocked because of they, they, you know, they go to the, the internet and they look that up and it's like, wow, that's really a job. Yes. Somebody actually is a fluffer and they don't actually, you know, work in politics. Uh, amazing. Um, you have a section, at least porn is honest about what it is. And, uh, you, you look at two uh, movies, uh, I've only seen one of them, uh, the the Darkest Hour and Chappaquiddick, which purport to be his histories, but which uh, are somewhat creative with the facts. Yes, one well, Darkest Hour is about May nineteen Winston Churchill in May nineteen forty, the pivotal moment for World War II, and by, by some analyses, the pivotal moment for democracy and human liberty. And Chappaquiddick is, of course, about the, the, mm-hmm. the tragedy at Chappaquiddick. But both of them present themselves to audiences as historical films. They don't have the word documentary on them, but they are both really fast and loose with factual material. And, and I find it's disturbing to the audience. You, as a film goer, you have no way of knowing which in these either of these two movies or in many similar air quotes historical movies what's verifiably true what's a matter of speculation and what's completely made up you don't know as 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 you watch and the message that movies like this and many other similar movies and also television shows send is that in the end it doesn't matter what's true as long as you're entertained and that's kind of a donald trump message isn't it yeah, it's, it's sort of true, uh, true-ish, right? It's just, it's like, well, it's close. Uh, I did think that the scene from The Darkest Hour, which I did see, that you highlighted was was actually, I remember at the time I had kind of a, you know, cocked eyebrow, where, uh, you know, at, at this crucial moment, the, the world is on fire, and uh, we're supposed to believe that Winston Churchill wanders into the London and underground uh, to have, I don't know what, a focus group with what you describe as, as a group of pleasingly multicultural Britons and draws from their plain spoken dignity the courage to defy Hitler. Sort of dramatic, but, you know, it, you, you, that that never happened. <laughs> so in, in terms of movie making, it's a wonderful scene. It almost brings tears to your eyes, but it's completely phony. And there should have been a, a, a little crawl at the bottom saying phony, phony, phony in capital letters. And again, my point is, I, I don't object if movie makers or playwrights create a character named Winston Churchill and put him in quotation marks and, and say, this guy is based on Winston Churchill in the same way, let's say, that George Bernard Shaw's character that he called mm-hmm. Joan of Arc was based on Joan of Arc, but wasn't. But, but, but everything else about the play was made up. I don't object to artists doing that. It should be presented to the audience as such, not presented to the audience as factual. It's part of devaluing the, the meaning of the word truth. The, uh, the the key scene in Chappaquiddick that you pull out, though, is a little bit more egregious, I think, because it depicts Joseph Kennedy Sr. Uh, plotting uh, to to mislead the public about uh, what uh, Teddy had done. And, and as you point out, th- that is just complete, not only not true, but impossible because he had suffered a serious stroke. He was a few months away from death. He was he, he, he was not participating in any conversations whatsoever. So, yeah, you know, it, look, the, the, the Churchill scene was maybe taking some dramatic license, but the Kennedy scene is just, I mean, that's just historically completely impossible. It is completely impossible. And you can say the Churchill scene, well, we made that up in order to praise him. The scene with Joseph Kennedy Sr. was made up in order to damn the memory of Ted Kennedy. And not only is it wrong to do that and then present your movie as factual, if you want to say this is fiction, okay, that's a different story. But I, I think the things that Ted Kennedy actually did 
are so yeah. deeply disturbing that you don't need to make stuff up if you want to exactly. make an anti-Ted Kennedy movie. And I, I, I have to admit, I this is a sign of how naive I am, despite my advancing age. I thought that the the Chappaquiddick movie might actually start a a really you know a, a serious introspection, particularly on the political left, about the legacy of Teddy Kennedy. Because of all the things we're talking about in the Me Too generation, um, you know, none of them, as as far as I know, uh, involve a a dead girl at the bottom of the the the, the canal, and yet I don't see the the kind of serious historical revision and i mean that in a positive sense some the, the questioning of okay how did we overlook that why did we make excuses is is that a precursor of our tribal politics that if it's our guy and he's right on health care we're going to overlook what he did with a woman who's dead yeah i i totally agree with you about that charlie um the the fact that that ted kennedy got into what was essentially an auto accident and the woman named mary kopechny died there have been terrible accidents that people who are otherwise good people have been mm-hmm. responsible for. And But the thing that's deeply disturbing about this is, as anybody who's read the history of Chappaquiddick knows, is it was, Kopechny didn't die right away. Mm-hmm. She slowly ran out of air over at least several hours and maybe as long as at least eight hours. And while she was gasping for breath, Ted Kennedy was back in a hotel sleeping, having not told anyone he was the only person in the world who knew that there was someone in dire distress under, it turned out, only a couple of feet of water who needed to be rescued, and he did nothing about it. And the fact that liberalism refuses to examine what this means and, and what the what the self-conception of liberalism means in, in the course of this, and the fact that Ted Kennedy, he never said, I was wrong, I'm a horrible mm-hmm. person, and I'll try to make it up to you. He just tried to... He, just denied it. And if you, if you, he, he wrote a, or he wrote is the wrong word. He signed his name to a memoir shortly before his death. And the memoir doesn't explain anything about Chappaquiddick except to say, and then there was Chappaquiddick. And I feel really bad about what happened to Mary Jo as if it was some outside force that he was observing from a distance. It, it it's a big, if, if anybody on the, the, the right is guilty of such a long list of offenses we don't have time we don't have time to catalog them all but if anybody on the right did anything like this there would be intense media pressure and the fact that there's none at all about about this is is disturbing yeah you don't have to use much imagination would not only be intense media attention to all of this but the chance that you would ever recover from this would be absolutely uh, null uh, you also point out a little tidbit about the movie, um, maybe not the most significant thing, but I found it fascinating that Chappaquiddick actually has a warning of quote unquote historical smoking. So right. we actually, as you point out, soccer moms, you know, won't let their kids see movies that show cigarettes, but showing murder is just fine. So murder is just fine. Hollywood in the last 20 years, Hollywood has reached a voluntary consensus that it won't glamorize smoking. And that's fine with me. I don't smoke. Smoking is bad for you. I, I think it's great that Hollywood won't glamorize smoking, but they will glamorize murder, torture. They will objectify women every chance they get. And it's just, you, you go to a, you go to a suburban shopping mall and there's, there's a soccer mom standing in line with her young kids to see a movie that glamorizes killing the helpless with guns. But, oh no, they can't see smoking because children are impressionable. 
So what are, what have we gotten in the last 20 years in society? We've gotten a lot less smoking, which is good, and a lot more mass shooting, and exactly what Hollywood is promoting. Uh, and apparently a lot more virtue signaling. All right, since this is the Tuesday morning quarterbacks and the bulk of your column does involve the NFL draft, let's uh, circle back for one last point here. Your favorite draft pick. Is there anyone that you said, and we talked about Baker Mayfield a little bit earlier, but is there, was there any other pick that you thought was unusually bold, creative, or just captured your imagination? A pick that captured my imagination. Um, I guess I would say that I really liked Alex Kappa. You probably haven't heard his name. He was taken in the third round by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. I liked him because he's from a Humboldt state, which is a division two school. It's in Northern California. It's in the Redwoods and and hippie part of Northern California. I got to admit, I didn't even know they had a football team. And <laughs> um, in college, he played against Shadron State and Azusa Pacific. And now wow. he's a, a high NFL draft choice. I, I have to admit, I'd never heard of either one of those schools, much less whether or not they had football programs. The Daily Standard podcast is brought to you by Quip. Look, the truth is that most of us are brushing our teeth wrong. N- not for long enough. We forget to change our brush on time. And that's because... Most brands focus on selling flashy gimmicks rather than better brushing, but not Quip. So what makes Quip so different? For starters, Quip's an electric toothbrush that's a fraction of the cost of the bulkier brushes while still packing just the right amount of vibrations to keep your your teeth clean. Quip's built-in timer helps you clean for the dentist-recommended two minutes with guiding pulses that remind you when to switch sides. Next, Quip's subscription plans are for your health, not just for your convenience. So they deliver new brush heads on a dentist-recommended schedule every three months for just five bucks. And that five bucks includes free worldwide shipping. Quip also comes with a mount that suctions right to your mirror, unsticks to use as a cover for hygienic travel whenever you take your teeth um, with you. And (laughs) here's the the thing. Uh, Traveling with this toothbrush is a lot more convenient than my big, bulky electric toothbrushes that I used to use. And finally, everybody loves Quip. They were on Oprah's O-List, named to one of Time's Best Inventions, and it is the first subscription electric toothbrush that's accepted by the American Dental Association. And they're backed by a network of more than 20,000 dentists and hygienists and hundreds of thousands of happy brushers who use Quip every single day. Okay, so Quip starts at just $25. And if you go to getquip.com standard right now, you will get your first refill pack free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash standard. That's spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash standard. Greg Easterbrook, thanks so much for joining me. The Tuesday morning quarterback column is up at the Weekly Standard site. And thank you for listening to the Daily Standard podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow, and we'll do this all over again.